0: actually, you know, I'd struggle a little bit for a good introduction to this message. I'll be honest with you. Part of the, part of the challenge is after you've put together what you believe the Lord's given you, after you've studied it and you looked at various words, you know, too far in depth and those kinds of things is how do I even get this thing off the ground? How do you welcome people into the subject at hand? And, and, uh, Sandra, uh, Bacon's, um, uh, just, personality is going to be my introduction. She's, she's leaving the room right now. So I just like embarrassing her because she is definitely someone who does not like the spotlight all that much, but she handles it so well. And it's a, it's kind of a conundrum because you want people like that to lead. And then that they're saying, but don't give me any attention. You know, most of us, most of the people I know don't necessarily bask in the spotlight and enjoy it. As much as we might fantasize, we would like it. So we know glory is out there for stars, athletes, actors, all those kinds of things. And people shower all sorts of attention and dollars on people that catch our interest. And you sometimes wonder in our own humble circumstances of like, how would I handle the pressure of needing to follow up my own act? Bands run into this all the time. These, you've heard the phrase one hit wonders and people are prisoners of their own success. They've put something out there that a million people have said, that's a great song. Three and a half minutes can make an entire career for some band. And they all say we were plagued or paralyzed with following up that success with what, and they get so in their own head of how do we create the next hit? That the creativity or the flow or the looseness of it just isn't coming. And so they they end up ruining their careers as quickly as they catapulted to success. I'm not exactly sure if this ties into what I'm trying to get at is what I'm admitting to you here. But most of us don't want a lot of recognition or fame or what we could say is glory. At least to the extent that we see other people having to deal with the pressure of it. We see so many... Uh, young uh, social media influencers losing their lives, ending their lives, going through very disastrous results to overnight fame, which is so easy to be had now in a social media context. To wake up one day thinking, I'm just an average person, to by the time you go to bed that night, two million people know what I create. How do you wrap your head around that? Glory is a very difficult thing for us to wrestle with. It's a very difficult thing for us to encounter because it's it's outside of our grasp. It's outside of our ability to to uh, to contain what it really means and all of the unintended consequences that come with it. So I would say that most of us don't really want the giant recognition or fame, but we want the ability or the opportunity to dismiss it. I think that's how I would describe the the subtlety of the problem of the human heart. No, 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 no. Don't, Don't shower any attention on me. I don't want credit for who I am, what I do, or anything. I just want the opportunity to say, please don't shower attention on me. I want to know you think you should shower attention on me. I just don't really want it. And that's the tricky part of how crafty our hearts can be. Peter, in 1 Peter 4, as we were finishing up verse 11 last week, pointed us towards a glory that would actually be the the form of motivation, if you will, but actually the greatest pursuit of our lives that allows us to put these things in perspective and not get all wrapped around the axle of, can I live up to this? Can I maintain it? Will it come back to bite me in the future? He said in verse 11 of chapter 4, after he had said how we follow the Lord and and uh, all that uh, all that is on us to be able to experience in in uh, for the kingdom and for Christ it said in verse eleven. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. Everything that we do has the potential of bringing fame and glory to one bigger than us. All glory and power to Him forever and ever. Now, what Peter's going to do is he's really emphasizing what the body of Christ, what we would say is the, the bride of Christ or the church itself. What he's going to challenge us is that we march towards making Jesus famous. We march towards lifting him up because all glory, dominion, power belong to him forever and ever. But we do it through a kind of a strange path. We do it through a, an unexpected or an unwanted and extremely unattractive path to giving him glory. This won't shock you if you've been following us in, in Peter, that this subject is going to continue to be in front of us. I just think that he's shedding different light on it for us because our view of suffering and how we endure it, what purpose it has in our life, what payoff is available to us is really shaped by our identity in Christ. Now I've looked at Verses 12 through 19, which will be our text, and I see identity all through it. I see who we are in Christ and what real impact that has in us not losing our minds trying to figure out how we, how we fit in this world or, or what attention or glory or fame or anything we should be living for. And I think that Peter is rooting our anchor or anchoring our focus in who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. So let's begin in verse 12. He says, beloved. And I love that term of endearment. He's he's about to lay a heavy hammer. And he's not doing it falsely. He's not, he's not building them up just so he can tear him down. He's saying, look, what I'm about to say is coming from an uttermost part of care in my heart. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. I'm always reminded of that famous quote by Mike Tyson. You guys know it? Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. That's what he says. And if you didn't catch that through my terrible impersonation, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And that was, not only was Mike Tyson extremely strong in the ring and skilled, but because he was so good at the first strike, people just like, I didn't know it would be that strong. I didn't know he was that skilled. I didn't, I'm actually in the ring. And all those thoughts are flooding into his opponent's head and they'd be out in 30 seconds. So what does Peter say? Don't be surprised. Peter knows what he's talking about here because as he was following closely behind Jesus, as Jesus was being arrested and brought before a trial and, and people, the commotion in the city and it's all abuzz with, with what's going on with this quote unquote false Messiah. As he was following closely, those in the crowd said, you're one of his, one of his, aren't you? We, we've seen you walking with him. You sound like him. You do the same things that he does. And we know that Jesus had prophesied that Peter, by the time that night was over, he would have denied him three times. You can almost picture Peter being in the ring with Mike Tyson. And the Mike Tyson in this, metaphorically, is that pressure, that that uh, persecution that comes with being close and near and like Jesus. And he gets punched in the mouth and he's sent reeling. He didn't think it would turn on him. He was in the crowd to see what would happen to his closest friend. And as soon as the heat started making its way over to him and started putting him under the microscope, his reaction was shameful. So he says, don't be surprised. Don't even be surprised at the difficulty, the fiery trial that is coming to your doorstep. And I think what he's doing here is he's shifting gears a little bit. Peter's been very gracious to us when he's been talking about persecution because he's entered into the world that most most of us are acquainted with. He has spent time talking about when we get ostracized from our friends and family, when we're no longer invited to the same gatherings that we used to be because now they think we're a little bit off. Now we're a little bit weird. Now Now we're following Jesus and our presence, even if we're not trying to be obnoxious, our presence is obnoxious and makes others uncomfortable. And I think Peter's very gracious to us because, I don't know about you, but I've been around this kind of teaching for a long time. And what I most often feel like is that we, we usually say, that ain't suffering. You know what? Some people are paying a price around the world, and it's true. People, especially outside of America and so many places, are paying an ugly, ugly price for their faith. And we should be acquainted with those stories. We shouldn't run from the truth of those stories. It should sober us. It should humble us. But what we have on our doorstep is our own. I can't go and manufacture the same suffering that my brothers and sisters in Christ around the world are feeling. I need to pray for them and have compassion for them. But I also have to deal with the things that show up at my doorstep. And I think Peter's been very gracious to us to not just say, look, what you guys are experiencing is nothing. You just wait. He's actually been open to the idea of the fact that what we feel in our isolation and ostracization and things is actual suffering. But when he throws out this phrase, fiery trial, now he's starting to shift gears. He's going from the personal sufferings that we experience to the institutional pressures that are now being uh, sent towards the church, primarily at the hands of Nero, who is literally sending fiery trials their way as we've said, by lighting Christians on fire for his own parties, his backyard parties as human torches in order for them to have a nice dinner together as an example that this is what Christians can expect to face. So Peter is saying these trials, fiery in nature, literally and metaphorically are arriving. Do not be surprised at them. Why would they be happening to us? What is the mindset Peter wants us to have? He says, because you have to prepare for the test. See, the whole thing that I think Peter's trying to get across here in in verse 12 is that you and I have signed up to be students in Christianity 101. You and I have enlisted, if you will, in the student life of being a follower and, and a learner of Jesus Christ. And so it, just like any student, you expect when you go to school, you have certain things you got to do. Being on time early in the morning, carrying a backpack or dealing with uh, some of the conflicts that come or, you know, uh, some of the aspects of the discomfort of being in school and all those kinds of things. You just kind of chalk up to this big ball of student life. That's that's who I am. I'm, I'm a student. That's the life that I'm in. And, and Christians, we have a tendency to look at as that's the kind of thing I can dip in and out of. That that Christianity is the kind of thing that is a flavor that I've chosen that, that tastes best for me. Instead of seeing it as this entire kind of atmosphere or environment of student life. So Peter is saying, don't be surprised when this fiery come, fiery trial comes upon you. Because it's coming to test your aptitude at the things that you've studied. The things that you claim to believe. So the trial is what comes our way to say, but do you really? And if you say you believe it, how long can you stick it out? How, how sustainable is this truth in your life? I like the way an old uh, classic theologian F.B. Meyer comments on these, on this passage. He said, we're called upon to share our Savior's sufferings not those of his substitution. We know that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he has the perfect sacrifice paid for those sins. You and I can't pay for those sins adequately or sufficiently. So he says it's, we're not called upon to share our savior's sufferings of substitution, but his daily self-denial, the hatred of men that we receive, the anguish of his soul over the obstinacy and opposition of the world. Now I love this point. This is what really kind of jumped out at me. The soldier who was nearest his leader, charging through the melee of the fight, is likely to get the same treatment as is meted out to his prince. It's not strange. It would be strange if it were not so, and if the traits in us that characterize our Lord did not win the same hatred as they won for him. It would be strange if you and I didn't get tested. If we go to school and we know that tests are a part of school, we would say, after an absence of tests, I wonder what's going on here. I studied all this. No one's testing me, especially students that are ready. And you know who you are. I, I don't get it, but you know who you are. You want to be tested to prove, you know, the material. So Peter continues in verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I I desperately, I dig into words like rejoice and glad because I want them to mean other than what they sound like. I I want them to sound more like, well, he doesn't really mean happy about this. He, he means it's more like this and it's a bit of a quieter joy. And it's a, you know, he, he really means that if you're expecting as a student in this life to be tested, that when you get tested, like that student who's prepared, you go, I ace the test. And there's an exuberance, there's a there's a jubilation that happens from being proven that you were ready. He literally says, be happy insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. I say this with as much humility as I can muster because I I look at that as a major challenge. I don't really want to say to people who see me day in and day out, week in and week out, we should be happy when difficulty comes our way. You go, well, let's see how that goes for, for Mr. Small. How's he going to hold up? How could I ever find happiness in my suffering? You know, the apostles were tested in this and their, their expression of this principle is found for us in Acts chapter 5 because as they spoke up louder and louder for Christ, they just witnessed this life-changing event of, of seeing their, their friend, their leader, their savior dead. And they're defeated. Now he's resurrected and alive. They can't shut up about it. They're setting the world on fire. So that when they're called before the council to pay the price, they're going to receive the beating. They're going to be made an example of all of those things. How do they respond? After they've received all of those things that came to pass. Acts 5 verse 41. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. As much as they could hop up in the air on broken legs, perhaps, or as much as they could shout with voices of, of, of that exuberance, even though they've been just dragged through the ringer, they said that what an honor it is for us to be counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, we're happy that we get to represent him. Did that feel good going down? Did it feel good? Every punch to the face, of course not. But that's what it means to share in the sufferings of Christ, that we have fellowship with it, that we are partners in that same path. So the question was, how could I ever find happiness in suffering? And they're giving us our answer. Our happiness is found in who the suffering is for. Because it was counted worthy to suffer for his name. In a couple verses from now, Peter's going to warn us, don't think that all suffering is going to produce this happiness. It's who the suffering's for is what he wants us to clue in on. We are students of Christianity 101. Now let's continue into verse 14. To understand this mark that we receive, this brand that we receive, after we've signed up, we said, I'm going to follow him. And he says, I'm going to brand you. So that you won't be mistakable. Verse 14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And here's the reference we made. Verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in that name. So don't let anybody suffer as a, a murderer and we go, okay, check. I won't kill anybody so that for, I don't have to face the prison time or the death penalty or something. Good, got it. Or don't even suffer as a thief. And we know that there's a lot of different ways that we can define being a thief. And we go, okay, I, I don't think I'm a thief, but it's getting a little closer to home. So Peter says, don't even su- suffer as a busybody. Don't suffer as someone who's involved in everyone else's business and they didn't invite you to it and everything. So Peter's got all the bases covered here. Don't suffer, essentially for what he's saying, don't suffer for the things that you cause and then turn around and say, well, that's just my cost for being a Christ follower. He doesn't let us get away with that. He says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, then the spirit of God will rest upon you. Don't you know a lot of martyrs who are walking around just feeling like they're taking all the arrows for being a, a follower of Jesus Christ, and you're like, you're just being a jerk. That's why people don't like you. <laughs> but it's hard for us to see that in ourselves, isn't it? It's hard for us to see because we, we think all forms of pressure or unacceptance or any of those things are all things that are being done to us. We very slowly wake up to the reality that these might be things that we've caused and therefore deserve some feeling from, some pressure from. But he, salt, he said that you're insulted for the name of Christ. In verse 16 says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, which is interesting, this is only that word Christian, we use it very prolifically, but it's it's used only three times in the New Testament. And, and the word Christian came as a result of outside identity. It's it's you, those of you that are like Christ, those of you that are following Jesus of Nazareth, we are calling you Christ ones. And so it was an identity that was given to them on the outside. And it reminds me of a question I've heard for years and years that I think has always just been really sobering for me. The question is, if you're on trial for being a Christian, you guys know this? If you're on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? This was part of Peter's undoing at the moment of his tragic denial was the fact that he was so identified with Christ from his speech and his behavior and his proximity to the to the Savior that they could easily pick him out. You belong to him. We know you do. He had to deny it vehemently and with terrible language and just expression and everything. And they kind of probably watched him walk away going, well, we know we're right, but he clearly doesn't see it that way anymore. If we, you and I were on trial for being a Christian or if we said to our, our our acquaintances in life or our friends or our family, hey, what is the most telling thing about me? What's the label that you would put on me? I know it's not PC to put labels on people. What would be the label you give me? Would it be a joy to you if they were to say to you, I think you're, that, you're a follower of that Jesus. That's what you seem to be to me. Seems to be the most important thing in your life. And you're a bad dresser. But other than that, you know, you're, I don't know what other labels people would give us. Peter says that the gift that you and I receive by entering into the struggle by being so close to our general on the field is more of him. He says the, the Christ one, the one who's paying the price for being a willing sufferer behind just on the heels of Jesus is going to have the spirit of God rest upon him. And, and that's kind of colored out for us much better in Isaiah 11 in predicting the coming Messiah. The prophet says that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So Peter is saying the spirit, same spirit rests on us. What can we expect it to look like? Isaiah said it would be the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Wouldn't that be something to be known for? A spirit of counsel and might. A spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That was promised to rest on Christ, demonstrated to us on this earth, recorded for us. And now Peter is saying that if we, uh, when God's spirit of ease of mind refreshes us, It enables us to endure the ugliest of battles because what we're putting on display is God's power more than our own. And God always wants to put his power on display, even during our weakest moments. I want to read a couple of larger chunks of scripture with you, uh, if I may, because going back to Acts chapter 6 demonstrates for us what it looks like when the Spirit of God really rests on those that are putting their trust and their faith in God's provision. Remember last week we actually said that when we're tired and we're spent, God's supply shows up, and we said that that word supply had to do with like following a dance leader? Like he is your dance partner and he says, I'm going to take the lead. I'm going to take the weight off your feet and I'm going to dance you around. And this is something that happened to Stephen as recorded in Acts chapter 6. Beginning in verse 8, the Acts of the Apostles says that in Stephen, full of grace and power was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, And of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. He's fighting all those groups, basically. All those groups, verse 10, could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him say uh, speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses, which is often what your opposition will do, who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. We're getting a picture of what it means when God's spirit rests on those who are willing to stand up to the ungodly opposition that's coming. And by by somebody who has taken themselves out of the equation and made it about the glory and the fame of God. So we jump down towards the end of chapter 7 after Stephen has delivered really what is a master class on sermon delivery and on content and everything. And he really puts them in their place for understanding that everything that he said and his brothers have said is really about the humble Messiah who's come out of Nazareth, who lived a perfect life and laid his life down as a sacrifice for our sins that they killed. And three days later, he beat death and rose from the grave, making this grace available to all in the council who would hear him. So how did they respond to that message of mercy and grace? Verse 54 says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. This kind of brings us back to what Peter said. They will malign you. Well, I'm trying to help them. Yes, but they will malign you. Verse 55, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they, the opposition, cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and they charged him. They cast him out of the city and they stoned him, which means they, they took softball-sized, cantaloupe-sized boulders and hurled them at him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul who would eventually follow Christ after an incredible conversion and be known as Paul, but at the time was overseeing this persecution of Stephen, seeing Stephen's literal death. Verse 59 as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice in only the way somebody can when they have surrendered to the supply that only God can provide. He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep or he died. So when Peter says, that the spirit of God will rest on those who remain faithful and open themselves up to the possibility of being led into the ugliest of corners, only to shine brightly the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. It's his supply. It's his promise that comes and helps us meet out that situation. Peter would have loved, I'm sure to be able to say instead of Stephen's name, that was Peter's name. Well, it ended in death, yes, but Peter for 30 years has been wrestling with the thing that you and I have when we live in our shame and our our guilt and and the things in which the, the Holy Spirit through his grace has to repair and do in our hearts and in our lives. Instead, we're looking at a story of Stephen because we know Peter's at that time didn't end so well. Paul Tripp says that the gospel of grace does not hold us to our worst moment or curse us by our worst decision. Some 30 years later, Peter is saying we can get this right. And Peter intended to and did. We endure to not be ashamed. That's a real part of our motivation in life. We've had far too much of it, so we want to leave that behind. That's what it means to endure for the glory of Jesus. No longer looking to protect our self-image, no longer to make ourselves look good in a situation. If he can get the glory, if he can get the credit, I give it all to him. And we all look back on those people and say, that's what heroism looks like. When we say the word glory, we're conjuring up images of. Fame and and popularity and, and wealth in our culture, but God, when He talks about glory, He's packaged it so uniquely for us in the Scriptures through a, a bit of a progression. I hope that's not a, a, a bad theological phrase to use in this. But but God in the Old Testament, His glory was revealed in such striking and 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 um, and sporadic kinds of ways that that the onlookers were terrified by it. Only certain people were allowed to see it in its certain forms. Those that saw any of it face to face like Moses glowed for days on end. God's glory showed up in these massive displays in that time. And then his glory shows up in the humble package of a baby born in Nazareth who lives a life of service. And, and and sacrifice for all those that he loved. Yes, de- demonstrating great acts of, of miracles and other things along the way, but but all still in such a relatable form that people can get near. They can touch his skin, they can touch the hem of his garment, and even receive healing. The glory of the Father was seen in his son, Jesus Christ. And then as Jesus is crucified and resurrected and ascends to heaven he leaves that glory through the presence of the Holy Spirit to be exercised and put on display through us. So, giant demonstrations, lightning out of the sky kinds of stuff, mountains shaking, all that sort of stuff, Old Testament. Jesus comes and makes it personal, makes it attainable because he has died for us. And then he says, you and I, Christ ones, as we follow him, now we demonstrate That same glory. God's glory is the biggest thing about him. And yet he determined to show it through you and me as we travel down this humble road of temporary suffering. We are branded by the one that we follow. And the last point I'm going to make here as we look at 17 through 19 is just that this salvation did not come easily for for Jesus. Jesus. And it certainly doesn't necessarily come easily for us. I would put it as we are hard won for Christ. Verse 17, it says, for it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. There's some tricky things you might have heard along the way as we go through this. And a good uh, principle, if you will, for your own personal Bible studies, just start asking questions of the text. Why would the writer have said that there? And what does that really mean? in spending some time looking at some of these phrases, if you engage with the text more, it comes alive. And we can't certainly satisfy all the controversies and questions that come out of this passage. But when we see a phrase, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God, we are hearing people use that left and right right now. Whatever we're experiencing, it could be a church going through this or that or the other thing. We can take that phrase and we can apply it. You see, because God says he's going to judge the church first. There's some truth to that. But we often look at judgment as a squashing. You know, the I'm going to come down and eliminate you and your behavior. Jesus said he would preserve the church. He said that he would prune the church. So the judgment that's coming here is not the judgment that's meant to annihilate, wipe us out, make us ineffective. It's a judgment or a test to go back to use Peter's earlier words in verse 12. It's a test to see if we know the material and to prove that we do. It isn't to defeat us. It isn't hoping that we all start knocking off and not being faithful. It's to prove that we are. And so the point here is that if judgment is going to come to those that belong to him, those that he loves, those that he protects, how much more so should those outside the circle expect a swifter judgment for those that don't obey the gospel of God. And then the quote here is if the righteous is scarcely saved, which really means not just barely by the skin of our teeth, because we don't have any skin on our teeth in order to be saved. We already failed right out of the get-go, and so the salvation that you and I have is purely a gift of God given to us. So it isn't we just barely made it in, but it's that it was a salvation or righteousness given to us through great adversity. All that Jesus laid down, all that we experience even now that we have it, That we come through this as having gone through some things. Therefore, verse 19, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls. And again, ask yourself the question, why did he use the word creator in verse 19? I have a tendency when I'm reading quickly, I'm like, that's just another name for God. He's just throwing it out there. Almighty. A lot of people use the word almighty. Father. There's lots of names we can give. Why? Why creator? I believe that Peter wants us to see that all that is, all that we have been surrendering to in these last couple of chapters, all that we've had to place our trust in because it looks scary, it's breaking down all around us. There's no guarantee that we come out looking good on the other side. All of those things need to be placed in the trust or we need to place our trust in the hands of the one who made it all to begin with. He knows how it's supposed to stay afloat. He knows what it can endure. He knows what it's meant to take. And so he knows the end of it. He knows it's breaking point. If we continue to trust that he is the faithful creator then what we're going to find is the one who started it all to begin with has been holding it in his hand all along and knows what the outcome is and that you and I continue to march forward saying, I don't see how this is going to turn out for my good. I don't know how I'm going to survive this, but I do know that the one who made it all and has a plan for it still has me in his grasp. You see, we are hard won for Christ. So being a student of Christianity 101 means that we embrace this New life and dismiss the one that we came out of. In our old life, we lived by lies. In our new life, we've been given truth that we can adhere to, that we can allow to permeate our life, and we can rest in the light of that truth. In our old life, we would give in to everything about us in our pride, in our self-centeredness. And then Jesus has come and given us the ability to walk in humility. In our old life, we pursued pleasure with the parties and all the things that the next day would leave us empty. And he says, no, instead, you can now live for holiness, which gives us that mission of being unique and set apart and useful for the creator's purposes. Instead of empty, pursuing my own. And the old life was full of greed and getting everything that we can out of these days right here, where instead, if we surrender that to living for the glory of God, we are pursuing the bigger mission. We're pursuing his fame more than our own. I'm imploring us to allow people to see our branding mark. Will they call us Christ ones? Will they call us followers, surrenderers, learners of who Jesus is? Will that become our identity as we continue to go through this life? If we focus on the fame of Christ above all else, we're going to find a surprising endurance for this fight because God always does what is best for his glory. I want to just wrap up with a minute of just kind of helping us see the picture of all this, asking you a question, where do you see yourself on this scale? There's a progress of letting suffering bring about the intended glory that God has for us. Right out of the gate, the bare minimum for those that are Christ ones, those who are followers of Jesus, we need to anticipate that suffering is a part of life. We said that's student life. So it's, it's, it's kind of that, that Mike Tyson thing about, you know, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Okay, so I know as a Christian, I can no longer be surprised when bad things come my way or difficulties because Peter said don't think it's strange. It's not. So check. I anticipate. But that isn't necessarily just a Christian viewpoint, is it? A lot of people expect, Eeyore expects bad things to happen to him. So it needs to grow beyond that. I can anticipate that suffering is a part of life, but I also need to accept that suffering is a part of my calling as a follower of Jesus Christ. It's a part of the whole package. It isn't just for some. But if I'm truly a follower, I can accept that now. And I think the most mature place to be, what we saw the apostles demonstrating, is that we start to welcome suffering. I didn't say go out and invent it. Go out and flog yourself in order to prove you can take it. But welcome it as an opportunity for worship. Do I see that I could actually run out of that trial jumping for joy and clicking my heels? If I don't see myself there, I know where my growth point is. I know where my next level of maturity is that God wants to do in my life. These are the things that we learn to surrender to the Lord. These are the ways that the gospel becomes so practical for you and me. Because I think all of us would say we don't really avoid the difficulties in life. They are a coming. It's how we embrace them, how we handle them, and what use they are meant to share, or to, to uh, play in our life. And will we surrender to it? I'm gonna, uh, turn things over as we prepare our hearts for communion now. And in both locations we have our elders in place ready to lead us in communion. We're gonna welcome Jim Higgs here in the auditorium, Danny Carrion in the B. Lee Center, and so we're gonna share our communion time together and, uh, and be dismissed. Jim.